And then I cue the strings. Ready? Yeah. And that means I want a little crescendo and then a day crescendo. Hello and welcome to the Survivor Historians, the official Survivor podcast of the Susanville Symphony. As always, this is Mario Lanza, and that's the only person who's here today. And before I, you, I know you're going to listen to this, you're going to feel cheated, you're going to say, Oh my god, I tune into Historians because I want to listen to all four of those guys. Why is Mario there by himself? Well, it's because this is a special podcast. Today, we got a big one. We have, we've done the interviews on the show before. We did the one with uh, Chris Doherty back in Vanuatu. So we are no strangers to having, you know, certain types of players on. But today, we have the big one. Down in our basement right now, much like Matt Foley, the motivational speaker, we got, you know, he's been... He's been drinking down the black coffee. He's been taking no-dos. He's hyped up on caffeine pills. We have a very special guest here. We have the Dragon Slayer himself, Coach Benjamin Wade. And its I understand you may feel cheated that all the historians are, are not here, but we made a kind of decision here that it was very awkward with Chris last time that we had four people were interviewing one, and it became very tough to get questions in. And so they basically just said, let's just have Mario do it this time. It's easier, just one-on-one. They helped me come up with the questions. It was all planned. So I hope you don't feel cheated. It's just me. Again, we have someone very big coming out here in a second. So I just wanted to uh, hype you up for this. So anyway, uh, since I start the podcast the same way, I'll just pretend that all four of us are here just so you feel like you get your money's worth. So uh, let's start this over. I'll say basically, uh, as always, this is Mario Lanza. And this is Jay Fisher. And this is Mike Bloom. And this is Paul Athelson. And we are the Survivor Historians, and we are here today to interview maybe the most majestic player of all time, certainly the most cinematic, one of uh, the more polarizing players in Survivor history. And uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush. We'll just bring him on out here. Let's uh, open the door, let him out here. He's been raring to go. Here comes the our interview with the Dragon Slayer, Coach Benjamin Wade. All right, so uh, Coach, you have officially joined the Survivor Historians for the long-awaited interview. Welcome. I'm I'm honored. <laughs> I'm ner- I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I'm honored. I'm ready to blast with both <laughs> barrels. I'm ready. Let's get into it. I'm okay. honored, though. I, I really am. I, I got to tell you, just before we ask any questions, I was. Uh, you know, it's like we're we're like C-list celebrities on Survivor, but the first time we go on, we think we're we're like B-listers or A-listers. We have all these illusions of grandeur. We think we're going to do something. And uh, so anyway, so you know, it was after the last time. It was after it was after South Pacific, and I'm like traipsing along the internet, and uh, you know, Google my name. Why not? Everybody does that. And so I Google my name, and the funny 115 comes up. Man, I. I had to find out who you were so I could send you a message to just say, because when I first started reading it, of course, I'm like, start getting bowed up. I'm like, wait, you know, that's not supposed to be funny. And then as I'm reading it, it actually, it actually changed like a little bit of the perspective of myself in terms of survivor. 
and uh, it kind of shifted that paradigm. And then I just loved it. And then I kept reading all of them. And then it didn't matter if it was my entry or other people's entries. I started reading all of them. It was freaking awesome, man. I don't do a lot of interviews, um, but I don't. I'm. I'm. I don't want to put any time limit on this, man. I'm. I'm super fired up. <laughs> Okay, this is going to go long into the night then. But yeah, that's that's really cool to hear. I just have to say that one of my things when I'm writing these articles is that, you know, when you're writing comedy piece, you can be mean. And I try not to be mean. It's always kind of my thing that if the person actually were to read this, I want them to laugh at this. I would hope they would find it funny. So that really kind of uh, when I first heard that you liked your entries, that was such a weight off my shoulders. I'm like, I really want Coach to know that I love him as a character and I'm not trying to be mean to him. I'm just trying to get people to appreciate him. No, that's cool. And also, but it's okay. If you've got to zing people, you know, sometimes that's, you know, that's the only way that you're going to get through that hard exterior is if you zing them. And it's like, you know, I mean, I take stuff, I take criticism and mockery and all that stuff. I take it in, I filter it, spit out stuff that doesn't matter, and then really chew on stuff that I can digest on and use and uh, and sharpen myself. No, no pun intended. Um <laughs> Anyway, so uh, I, I like the zinger. You know, I mean, maybe maybe after the first Survivor, I was a little bit sensitive about it. But as time goes on, I love the zing as much as the zest. Excellent. Yeah, that's and I, I that's actually going to lead into my first question nicely. But I do have to say, just for legal reasons, you won't you do know you're you're hooked up to a lie detector for this whole interview, correct? Wonderful. Okay. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is going to lead into my first question because this is something that I've kind of mentioned before on the show that I talked to you a couple of times outside the show, just at finales and fan events. And it's inter- interesting The one of the very first things you said to me right after uh, token chains is you said, you know, and I- I'm curious if, if you, if you've changed your mind on this, you said, you know, if, uh, if I watched that asshole on TV, I would have hated him too. I'm curious if you still feel that way about your token chains edit. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have not, I have not gone back and watched, mm-hmm. um, so it's only what I can piece together with my memory. Um, I don't think it was. I don't think it was that. I don't think it was that bad. But again, I haven't watched it. You know, mm-hmm. I know in the heat of the moment how they were portraying me. Thank goodness. Um, you know, I love it now. I, it was hard in the beginning, and part of the reason why it was hard in the beginning, you know, psychologically, when you are psyched up for something, when you believe in something, and then there's that letdown that it's not true, mm-hmm. then, you know, then, then it hurts more, right? It's like, if you, if you're in a relationship and it's a bad relationship, it doesn't hurt as much as if you think you're in a good relationship and there's complete monogamy and then something happens and then you're, you know, you're, you're more, you're more hurt, you're more open, you're more vulnerable. And so as I came back from token teams, if we put this in perspective, you know, I came back, I didn't know anything about survivor before I went on. That's evident. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a fan of the show, didn't watch the show, tried to watch Cram before casting, didn't really sink in. So I didn't really know about the show. So I come back, and my friends are all like my friends, my family. Everybody's like, man, you know, well, how'd you do? What'd, what'd you do? Were you a jerk? Were you, did you lie? Did you cheat? You know, did you, did you just screw everybody over? And so my response to everybody, I was actually talking to my mom about this uh, the other day when she flew up from Orange County and we were talking and I said, you know, I told all of you that I was going to be perceived as a hero. I was going to be the guy that starved the most because I could survive on the least. And I gave my food away every day of the tribe, gave my portions away. 
I was a guy that tried not to lie. I was a guy that tried to play an honorable and noble game. And so when I came back, I told everybody, I'm going to be the hero. You guys are going to love me. I think you're going to be super proud of me. And so to, then to see what unfolded was really hard to, was really hard to digest. And, you know, I was in high mode, NCAA, soccer coach. What I say goes, I'm always right. You can't afford to be wrong in front of the team. And so I was in that mindset. So then when I watched it back, not only was I disappointed, because if I had told everybody, I'm going to be over the top, I'm going to be the biggest character, hey, I might say stupid stuff, I might piss people off, but let me tell you something, you're going to remember me. If I had said that, I think it would have been an easier pill for all of us to swallow. Mm-hmm. In the moment, I remember saying that to you, and so I have to, I have to stay with that. I think mm-hmm. if I watched it again, because I know the background, and I know what really happened, it wouldn't be that bad. But for a person watching it blind, I'm sure that, as I said, you know, I would, I would not have liked that jerk as yeah. much as anybody else. I, so I think that that still would hold true. But, but there's so much. And what I appreciate about you is that you've taken a lot of the subtleties of the game, mm-hmm. of my game the jacket over the shoulder. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean that, that kind of stuff, man. I mean, like people weren't, people didn't really, you know, they, they got blinded by, you know, people saying, who is this jerk, not living up to expectations. I've done this, I've done that. But, you know, for you to not notice the subtleties and the nuances of my games mm-hmm. is super cool. There was a lot of stuff going on out there. There was a lot of stuff that I'm sure you're going to probe into of what was going on in my mind. So I'll shut up as that was <laughs> only the first question. Okay. And let you keep probing. Yeah, it's um. I mean, you're not the first person or the last person who I've talked to who's who's you know come off the show thinking I'm going to get a hero edit. People are going to respect me. They're going to really like me. And then to see that they get a bad edit, like I've I've talked to people before. That's got to be just a weird thing to go through. Like, and and obviously you met her in uh, Austria in uh, Heroes versus Villains, Jerry Jerry Manthe, where she's kind of the original case in this. But I've heard she came out of the show thinking that she was going to be the hero like oh i did all these great things and then the cowboy colby backstabbed me and i was hurt and and i will be the tragic victim and she had no idea she was going to get this villain at it and so i mean could you go a little more into that what is that like like obviously you have no you have no really way to combat that like you're as a player you're not allowed to comment on social media about it, at least back then and in token chains they do it a little more now but what like what is that what does that feel like to know that what is you're seeing on TV is completely different than how you saw it in the game. Yeah. I, I think that it's interesting because like you said, we couldn't go on social media back then at all. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was, there was no way to go out and, and really combat that. I think that, you know, for me, you know, I lost my job. I was like, you know, I mean, I was very high up on the coaching ladder. I was turning down division one jobs almost monthly to find that right fit for me and the coaching staff, you know, being a soccer coach, you know, your reputation is everything. And, you know, essentially I was blackballed uh, from the NCAA. I can't get a job at the NCAA. Um, Mm -hmm. I was blackballed because of what happened. And so it was tough. You know, I think that, that, that through it all, it was a beautiful journey and I don't regret anything. I don't regret any of the edits. I don't regret, you know, the producers being brilliant at what they, at what they were doing to try to pull different sides of my personality. Mm-hmm. Um, 
into, into who I was morphing into out there. I, I think though, even the hardest thing though was looking at your friends and looking at your family because there's no prep for them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about other people. I'm sure it's the same way, but my friends don't watch reality TV. They don't, they, they're not really in a survivor. There wasn't one of my friends and I'm talking about my inner circle, you know, like, like my inner 20, mm-hmm. you know, those people, those people, you know, for the most part are very successful, very wealthy, um, very prominent citizens and, and not saying you can't mix it to, but you know, they just, they're not watching, you know, they're not watching reality TV. They're probably watching masterpiece theater or whatever. <laughs> And so, you know, so like they couldn't relate and they did not understand mm-hmm. and they would get on and defend me on these blogs. And of course, you know, there was a lot more, it's kind of been centralized with people making comments, but back then, you know, there's all these different places where you could throw shit at somebody. And so my friends would try to get on and then they would just be, you know, vaporized by these people. They would yeah. all get ganged up, ganged up upon. And so they stopped trying to defend me, but then I saw the shift in their eyes. And for, it's crazy because on Survivor, I'm blind, deaf, and dumb. Like, I can't figure out people. In real life, I'm mm-hmm. super good. I've got a really good sixth sense. I feel like I can know what people are thinking. And not all the time. That sounds stupid. But, I mean, I, I can look at people and I, can, and I can read into them. I can take, you know, large audiences. When I've spoken public and done TEDx talks, I can see the audience, I can feel the energy, a soccer team, a symphony, a crowd, I can, I can judge what they're thinking, I can move them, I can manipulate them emotionally in a positive way, I can take them on a great ride. On Survivor, I can't do that. I did it a little bit on the South Pacific, but for mm-hmm. some reason, I just can't connect those dots. And so, Anyway, so back to my friends, you know, when I saw my inner circle looking at me with doubt, you know, and and the, and the big thing, you know, like taking those kayak trips. You know, I mean, like, man, I I went through a lot of different things of awakening as a young man, mm-hmm. and I feel like you know that that kind of made me who I was at that point in my life. And I talk about them a lot. I don't I don't talk about those experiences hardly at all anymore because I've had a bunch more experiences. But at that time, they were more relevant. And you know, so my friends started looking at me like thinking, man, maybe this guy is totally full of shit. I mean, look, the producers think he's full of shit, mm-hmm. and the world thinks he's full of shit. They couldn't really figure it out. And so I think that was the hardest part, looking at my friends who were doubting me. Mm-hmm. Some of my closest friends, my parents, um, stopped watching wow. completely. Um, and my my dad, you know, I remember he texted me. He passed away last year, but he texted me, and he said, you know, I'm, I've turned off the TV, and I'm not going to watch it. It was during the famous... Uh, Amazon episode, and uh, uh, he said, "You know, they're making they're making a jackass out of my son on national television. Why would I watch it anymore?" Yeah. So I mean, that was like the that was like a very very difficult part. And I think if you know, I mean, if you're Aussie, I know I, I love <laughs> I love using Aussie as a reference, but because he is the typical you know surfer bartender, there's not that much to lose there. Yeah. I had a lot of skin in the game at that point, and going from a reputation of a guy that is working with national teams, working with professional teams, heavily immersed in a collegiate soccer career, and my reputation was everything. I mean, look, you know, in this day of sexual harassment, uh, cases popping up left and right, man, I did 20 years as a college soccer coach, and 16 of those were were women. A lot of times I did men and women, 
at the same school, but I think, you know, 15 or 16 years of those were with women. Man, I had not one time where any female athlete of mine said, I don't like the way he's looking at us or talking to us or, you know, whatever it is. Like nothing. My reputation was spotless. Mm-hmm. So to, to go on Survivor and to have all of that stripped away, my reputation, my character, what people's perception of my character was, um, you know, financially, um, mm-hmm. man, it was, it was really tough. It was really tough. And nothing prepared me for that. I'm rough around the edges. Everybody's got their religious beliefs. I'm not, I'm not judgmental at all. In fact, probably the best compliment I got the first season was halfway through. One of the producers looked at me and said, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. Um, and they said, man, you know, you don't, you don't act like one. You don't act like the typical Christian that we found on the show. And so do you, like, if more people were like you, I think more people would want to be, you know, mm-hmm. a Christian. It was a, it was a very good compliment, but, you know, to have all that taken away, if I didn't have that foundation, mm-hmm. I think, I, I think I, I would, I would have crumbled, man, because yeah. it was just everything was taken away. The good thing is, is that it did, it actually recentered me and said, hey, you know, it's got to be more of God in your life and less a coach. So it was really good. I mean, seeing me in a mirror, mm-hmm. even though it was the worst times in a forty-eight hour period, even if, even though it was baited a little bit with some of the other questions that were asked to some of the other contestants. Mm-hmm. You know, it was seeing me at my worst. And I remember thinking, if I'm that guy, even for a moment, I don't want to be that guy. And so it did kind of help me look in, look in the mirror and say, man, let's, let's, let's change some things about, mm-hmm. you know, the way people perceive you. Yeah, it's one thing that it's, uh, I don't know if a lot of our listeners are going to know this. What we do is we trace kind of the history of Survivor. And I don't know when people are going to listen to this interview, but as we're recording this, this is nine years ago. It's about nine years ago you taped Token Sheens? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess that's true. It was, it's been uh, almost a decade, yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, so when you came off, I mean, I know the Survivor fan base. I've always kind of had my finger on the pulse of how fans react to people. And you were just hated at the time, weren't you? I mean, among Survivor fans. Like like you said, your friends would get online and they'd get vaporized because people hated Coach so much. Yeah, it was kind of like, you know, there would be there would be people that would say, that would email me, you know, because I've always been kind of a public figure in terms of just having, I, I'm, People can get a hold of me, right? I mean, my email is on the Symphony website. My email is on my soccer, you know, whatever place I was coaching at. And so I would get emails, you know, like 10 a week. People would just say, I love what you stood for, you know, the warrior, the this, the that, you know, and then I get 10,000 people. <laughs> I hate your guts. I cannot. The funniest one was one guy said, I wait every week for you to be voted off. And then I got voted off. He was like, This is the greatest week. It's how It was really funny. So, yeah, I mean, it was like I clung desperately to those 10 emails a week where people said that I changed their life. Does that mean really? Listen, I didn't go on Survivor to, to be a TV star, I didn't yeah. go on there to be famous, right? I went on there. To try to change the game and really to to, to try to help people. There's no no BS. To help people push through their fear is the same thing I do with every soccer team that I've coached and the symphony and people around my life. I mean, is to blow through those obstacles in your life to persevere to become a better man or a woman. 
mm-hmm. which was a big part of my problem that first time out there, is that yeah. I tried to pigeonhole people into my journey instead of saying, oh, you want to talk about white cupcakes and you really are out here for the fame or you're out here for the money or you're out here to lose weight or you're out here for this. And so I, mm-hmm. I was trying to pigeonhole them into my adventure, which was a big mistake. But, yeah. um, you know, it, but, but yeah, people were just, People were crazy on me. I, 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 it was wild, man. And even Jeff, it was funny because, you know, each week I was clinging to his blogs oh, good. and reading what he said, you know, because he had, he did have faith in me. He was like, man, give Coach a chance. He, he wasn't even ready, you know, for the amount of, of hate that I got. He kept thinking that people would turn around mid-season. And I and I think that they did a little bit. I mean, I think that even if you hated me, you had to respect, you know, the most glorious edit in all of reality TV, which was that final episode <laughs> in Token Teams that I was on. I mean, I could I I have not watched that. I need to go. I, I mean, if I'm ever feeling bad, I should just turn that on. It's great. Yeah, it's it great. And, and yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I I am like forever in their debt mm-hmm. for for doing that. Yeah. And and for really showcasing everything, but I think Jeff thought, you know, he saw that last episode as the season was going on, and I'm sure he thought these people are going to turn around. And and I think it did probably plant a seed. It gave me a good platform to go and do the next season on, mm-hmm. and to kind of go off of that. But anyway, so we'll get to that. But yeah, it was a lot of lot of lot of hatred and a lot of uh, people that just couldn't relate. And I, you know, I did say jokingly. And I, I and I think that this holds a kernel of truth. But I, you know, Marco Polo said on his deathbed, "I have not told half of what I've seen, for I knew they would not believe." Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like if people look at my life and they say, "Man, if this is, you know, this guy's done half of what he said that he's done," it is difficult to measure up. And my my wife always says, "Look, you know, you're too put together. You're too accomplished in too many different areas." And you're too eclectic for people to really get you mm-hmm. on a show like this. In normal life, I can relate to anybody. Mm-hmm. Out there, it was a lot more difficult. It's. I'm glad you brought that up. That's something I wanted to talk about specifically on this. Is that you? I don't think people realize how accomplished you've been in your life. Like you know, they say, "Oh, he tells these weird stories, and they're not true." But like, like it's it's you were legitimately one of the better soccer coaches in the country. I mean, you you still coach. Like you said, you were black ball, but you bet you got back in it right at a certain point. Well, I still can't get the place as well. I still couldn't get back in the NCAA. I probably could maybe at this this point, but mm-hmm. you know, for a while I, there was nothing. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm coaching a semi-professional soccer team, very mm-hmm. successful. Mm-hmm. You know, and as you said, I mean, it, and that was part of it, right? Mm-hmm. It, the part of it was. When I went out there, I'm used to walking in a room. I mean, listen, when I was a, when I was a young kid, you know, and I was playing trumpet, mm-hmm. really cool, God-given talent. Mm-hmm. I worked a lot. I worked a lot for it. Practiced every day. You know, you think about a lot of 14-year-olds that want to do one thing for four hours a day. I practice in the morning and the, during the day. My free period at school, you know, after school, evening. I come from a very musical family. My father was a very famous mathematician, um, mm-hmm. developed a lot of mathematics that are used today, CAT scans, from CAT scans to, to smart missiles and the logarithms that are used there. I mean, he's 
he was a, he was a brilliant man. And so I didn't get that math side, but I did get a little bit of the music side. But I'd walk mm-hmm. into a room and I'd win every competition. I never lost a competition ever. Yeah. I'd walk into a room and that small world of trumpet players would say, "That's the guy to beat." They'd point at me, they'd say my name, and I'd beat all of them every mm-hmm. competition my yeah. whole life. And so, I mean, I was used to walking into a room as a soccer coach, as a symphony conductor, taking command and owning the situation and being successful. So you go on and survive And who wants that? You know, yeah. nobody wants that. And even, and even I'm just being, I'm, I'm going to be a hundred percent real. Everything I say to you, even if it comes across the wrong way, and maybe I'm too trusting, maybe I was too trusting on Survivor, maybe I was too trusting with who I was. I just lay it out there. It's like, this is who I am. Some mm-hmm. people are not going to like me. And that's my whole life. It's not like I've gone through life and everybody said, man, I love this guy. I mean, listen, the, the coach at Feather River College and the coach at Lassen College, and I won, you know, I won the Golden Valley Conference Championship 10 out of 10 years at three different schools. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to touch that. The coaches that I beat every year, they, they didn't like me. Yeah, you know they had to respect what I did, but they didn't like me. I don't mm-hmm. expect everybody to like. I expect my inner circle to follow me, and I will, you know, follow them and and take everybody to great heights. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't used to that. I was used to saying, "Guys, look, I'm a coach. I'm a soccer coach," and I expected everybody to just <laughs> say, "All right, man, what are we doing to this challenge? Yeah. Who did you put in what position? You've won. You know what to do." That's what you saw in South Pacific, yeah. right? I had uh-huh. a team that was not as good as the other team. Mm-hmm. I mean, me against Ozzy, Ozzy would kick my ass any day. Yeah. But, you know, we competed and we got to the merge with numbers because they, they actually trusted me. They were like, Coach, what do we do? And I mm-hmm. said, I think we should put this person on there and there and there. And I helped, I helped coach them to mm-hmm. some victory. So I, was just, I wasn't ready for people to not respect who I was mm-hmm. and what we could do together. That was the biggest disconnect that first time. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad you brought up the trumpet thing because that's something I was going to bring up. Like anybody can Google this. There's articles about Coach when you were a kid as this like prodigy trumpet player. Like that's not disputable. It's all out there. You were really like a really good trumpet player. And it's so odd to know people that are really good at music and sports that those are such different levels of the brain. And I, the, one, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I'll tell you my all-time favorite coach scene. And it's probably not the one you're going to think I'm going to say this is one that will catch you off guard. But in South Pacific, and, and well, this is supposed to be about token chains. We try not to spoil future seasons, but, you know, F it. I'm with Coach. I'm going to talk about this. My favorite Coach scene of all time, and indeed one of my favorite 10 Survivor scenes of all time, is where Cochran comes over right at the merge, and he starts talking to you. And you start talking to him on a level I don't think we've ever seen you talk about on Survivor, where you say, I know what it's like to be extraordinary and to be picked on and be an outcast. That's been me my whole life. And it's funny because you can Google your history, and I know exactly what you're talking about, that you probably didn't fit in. Like you said, you were a trumpet player. You had these really great skills. And kids like that who are extraordinary get picked on. I know I know full well. I was like that, too. I had weird gifts. I was an odd kid. I was really good at writing, telling stories, and like that, but I don't fit in with other kids. I never did. So I get your whole little conversation with Cochran, basically, I know what it's like to be extraordinary. I know what it's like to be excluded. It hurts, man. Like, I'm sure you know that scene very well. And that's that's my all-time favorite coach scene because I think we see you on a different level there than we've ever seen you before. I mean, I thought that you were going to say nine out of the top ten 
favorite moments on Survivor were mine, so I'm a little bit disappointed that yeah. my top moment barely makes the top ten <laughs> but uh, of your all-time favorite moments. But anyway, yeah. actually, I, I totally forgot about that. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing, you know, like people... I wish I had that final tribal over again. But anyway, that's <laughs> one time. Um, I, no, but, you know, I mean, I just... I, I, was, re- I was real. And mm-hmm. with Cochran, I was real with everybody all three seasons but people didn't really want to give me the chance i think that cochran going from sleeping outside the fire to being you know really ostracized that season and then you know having that chance to be with real people and in an environment that was not based on threats or whatever i mean you know we had a really cool thing going for what people want to criticize yeah. what we did during that season. But I, uh, I really felt like at that moment, you know, it's because before that, everybody was saying, Oh, I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to talk to him. And I'm going to talk to him. And I'm going to talk to him. And I look, I've made eye contact with him in a couple of challenges and da, 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 da. And so, you know, people were all trying to buy for that person to flip Cochran. And I just, I just told everybody, and it was cool because I was looked at as a leader. And I just said, no, I said, I got this. I know mm-hmm. exactly how to approach it. I didn't, but I just had a feeling about it. And then when we started talking, I just asked him about him and, you know, listen, you spend, you spend 15 days or 15 minutes with Ozzy and you're going to know everything about what he's doing, but he won't know one thing about you. Um, and it's just the type of person that he is. And so I, I, it was evident immediately that Nobody even cared about who Cochran was, where he'd come from, what he was doing outside the show, much less on the show. And so, mm-hmm. you know, for me to kind of explore those areas and then find the common ground, uh, it was really cool. It was good, good bonding moments. I mean, he's still one of my best friends mm-hmm. uh, outside the show of Survivor. Yeah, it was just such a neat scene, and it's one of those South Pacific, like you said, isn't really a historically beloved season. A lot of fans don't like it. I happen to love South Pacific. And it might not be for the reasons you like, like I like Sophie's win. So we won't get too much into that, but that's (laughs) that, that scene alone right there with you and Cochran. I always say there's so much more going on in that season than in most seasons. And that's the scene I point to watch that season. There's a lot of early first season psychology, just human interaction in that scene. And you don't see that very often in survivor anymore. So I cling to these little morsels of humor and interaction like that, that I think make the show so deep. Yeah. Okay, so um, this is something something you mentioned a while ago that uh, like you've already built up your famous legendary final episode in Token Sheens. And this is something that you had mentioned to me before, and I want to bring it up again because I don't know if a lot of Survivor fans know this, that it's not just one editor that edits every episode, that there's multiple editors that do – they're like in a rotation. And you told me once the first time I met you that I, I think you said there were three episodes – in token chains where you felt like the editors really understood you and got you. And it was always the same editor that did those three episodes. You said there was one guy that really kind of got you. Do you want to kind of expand on that? Cause I don't think a lot of survivor fans realize that's how the edited, the episodes are edited. So yeah, I mean, they, they have, uh, you know, the producers are on and they're on three days and then off and then on three days. And then sometimes they'll switch. So one producer will go to the other tribe and, and work with them. And it's just, they're trying to get a, a well-rounded understanding of what exactly is going on out there. I mean, if you think about, you know, the, the I've, I've filmed, you know, several pilots that I was hosting and, you know, you start thinking about the exponential 
number of stories that are out there, the possible stories that are out there. And if you think any given survivor season on day one, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's 40 stories. By day 10, there's 5,000 stories. And by day 39, there's only three stories that have that will come all the way to that end. A lot of the other stories fizzle out. Some stories, you know, will run the course of three episodes or two mm-hmm. episodes or one episode. But then there's that slow build, and that's about this, you know, you look at this this last season, HHH, that, you know, that there was that slow burn, there was that slow build, and it actually made it very fulfilling. It's no surprise that the executive producer is now the same guy that was in control of those three edits that I really I really enjoyed. And there was some making fun of and there was some stuff, but I, mm-hmm. I felt like he really got I felt felt like he really got me and if you talked to any of the survivor contestants that have had the pleasure to work with this guy, um, they say they all say the same thing. I mean, he was hands down the best at what he did. Not mm-hmm. just because he gave me a quote quote, you know, good edit. There was still a lot of rib poking, you know, in those edits, but it was really cool that, that he could do that. So, you know, I mean, you think about the magnitude of trying to tie all these stories together and there might be a really good storyline. Imagine the dragon slayer storyline and I get voted out in day six. That, that doesn't, that doesn't even become a storyline and you never see me again. And so there's a lot of characters that I feel that have been out there that could have been legendary and they were cut short for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it, for the producers to take all those stories, tie them together, build some, cut some off, eradicate some completely, uh, and then eventually weave a story from start to finish. It's pretty cool. But yeah, it, it was. I, I did feel, you know, when you're out there, you build up trust. For me, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an eclectic person, not crazy. I'm, I'm an eclectic. I don't have any weird, you know, I don't have like a doll collection. I have a transformer collection. I don't have anything obsessive like that. I obsess in the, in the in the jobs that I do. That's when I when I become obsessive compulsive. My wife says I put blinders on to win mm-hmm. that championship, um, or to write that symphony or whatever it is. But I think that you know, for me, um, looking at that success or that eclectic eclectic personality in normal life, you stay within the confines. I have mm-hmm. kids now, so maybe I can get a little bit nutty in public. But, you know, normally you kind of stay within the confines of what people think is acceptable in behavior. And I'm holding out my hand so that they're like twice the size of a football. And that's what we deem as normal behavior. Mm-hmm. And on Survivor, the producers take that those boundaries and they expand them, right? I mean, we do things on Survivor that we wouldn't do in normal life. If we were sitting at a table and I said, hey, let's, you know, eat some live bugs and they put them down at the table. You'd say, you know, F this. And you'd say, I'm not eating this. And there would be, that would be the end of the story. So we do things, put our bodies through situations that you normally wouldn't do in your normal circumstances. Well, well, the great producers will take those boundaries and they'll expand them on both sides. So your eclectic behavior will be expanded and then accepted. Okay. And then they'll push it again. And then they'll push it again. And so what is normal outside is not normal inside the game of Survivor. And when they start pushing those boundaries and you start seeing that it's acceptable and you start looking at their eyes and you see that they're nodding, and yes, this is what we're talking about. Once you build that trust with the producers, and I got along good with all the producers, 
but you build that trust with the producers or a producer, producer in particular, mm-hmm. and then they stretch those boundaries, what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, that's your hour a day during confessionals to really make somebody understand you. And since you can't trust anybody back at camp, you end up trusting those producers and mm-hmm. they can really push those boundaries of your personality. For me, and part of the reason why I was talking to one of the executive producers a year ago and, you know, I, I, they said, you know, your name actually comes up every single season in casting just as <laughs> far as, are we going to bring them back? Are we going to do this? Da, 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 da. And, and some people were bent out of shape about game changers and that didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. You know, I know what they're doing. I understand that what they're trying to do for that big season. And so anyway, um, you know, I, I think that the reason why that is, mm-hmm. and if you talk to the producers that uh, I would say that I, and this is going to come off the wrong way, but you know, most of them will say that I was the greatest of all time, not for my gameplay, but just for the, for the way that they could take me. I'm not a jock, but I can be athletic. Mm-hmm. I'm not an asshole, but I can be. I can be a philosopher. I can be very sensitive and sweet. I can be a complete jerk. I can be driven. I can be angry. I can be whatever it is, but that, you know, you have that spectrum. Usually you're out there and you're there for your looks or you're there for your brawn or you're there for your brain or you're there for whatever. And you look at that casting, you know, I almost didn't get cast that first season because as my, as the, as my handler would say, you don't fit into any of these categories. They're looking for an old guy. They're looking for, uh, you know, somebody with ethnic background. They're looking for somebody that's a jock. They're looking for somebody that's young. They're looking for somebody that's sexy. They're looking for a nerd. They're mm. looking, and where do you fit in? You don't fit into any of those different stereotypes of casting. And so I actually, in the beginning, she was actually surprised talking to her in hindsight that I got cast because they didn't know where to fit me. I was kind of this anomaly. But because I could bring different levels Mm-hmm. You know, Cochran can bring can bring one level, and Ozzy can bring one level, and a lot of these players, Ben can bring maybe one or two levels. But when you have that spectrum of, I can give you really whatever you want because I have multiple parts of my personality and multiple sides of my brain that are functioning: the artistic side, the athletic side. As you said, that's a, that's a rare combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's one of those things I know you'll get, you know, flack for sitting here saying I'm I was the greatest confessionalist of all time, but I happen to agree with you. Like <laughs> you again, you give you give different levels of entertainment, I mean, depending on what the producers are looking for, and you can always tell with you what they're kind of asking to you to do and you'll just go with it. And this is a question that this is a question a lot of people ask me before this interview. They're like, "Ask him if the producers egg you on to get to that dragon slayer, like, do they egg on your behavior or do you just kind of sense what they want and do you go for it? Like what, what's the dynamic there? Uh, well, you know, they, they can obviously get what they want. Mm-hmm. And you can ask leading questions. Mm-hmm. They're very good about staying out completely about gameplay. You know, there was never one time where I felt like anybody was trying to get me to vote somebody out. Yeah. Or keep somebody on, you know, that comes out a lot. Oh, the producer screwed me in this or whatever. And that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, at least it never happened with me. But, you know, you know, I'm not, here's the thing, right? So halfway through token teams, you know, maybe not under halfway through, I'm in a confessional with this guy, 
that I was telling you about. I'm not, I don't know if I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to say his name, but feel free if you want to yeah, say his name, if you want to give him a plug. No, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm saying, I don't know for their benefit. I mean, I'm very, prote- I'm very protective actually of survivor and Jeff Probst and the producers and what they're trying to do. And so I would never want to, you know, not burn them, but I wouldn't want to, you know, say, yeah. you know, this guy's the best or whatever. So, I, I won't say it. But anyway, so, you know, we're in a confessional and and, and uh, he's egging me on about Brenda. And he's like, you know, what are you doing? He's like the strongest guy out here. You said that you're trying to take the strongest to the end. And I looked at him and and I got, you know, I got upset. And I said, you know, what the hell do you want me to do? This guy's, this guy's coming for me. Mm-hmm. And he's like nodding. And he's like, I know that. But you better back up what you say. Mm-hmm explain it to explain it to me. And I was like, I got it. I see what he's trying to do. Now I see what's happening. Yeah. And so I told him, I said, you know, there was in 1988, I think that was the year, you know, I mean, sometimes I, I will just grab something out there. It might not be a hundred percent accurate. I might change a quote a little bit here and there because I'm not smart enough to memorize. <laughs> I, I do write down a hundred quotes before I go out there just so I can sound smart because I know that I'm actually not smart and I'll write them all down <laughs> on paper and then pick one every single confessional but I might not get all of totally correct, but at least the feels is there. Um, but, you know, I mean, I said, so I think it was 1988 and Boom Boom Mancini bought Duke Koo Kim in the ring. And it was a big article in Sports Illustrated. And I was a huge boxing fan. My grandfather was a professional heavyweight. My dad boxed, I boxed. Um, and so it's in our family. And so I'm like, you know, thinking uh, Duke Koo Kim, Boom Boom Mancini will be a good analogy. And so the night before the fight, Duku Kim from Korea writes on a lampshade in his hotel room in English, kill or be killed. And the next day, he ended up dying in the ring uh, from Boo Boo Mancini. Wow. And so I used that analogy. I said, you know, it's either kill or be killed out here. And if I don't kill Brendan, uh, then he's going to kill me. And the producer looked at me, and I could see his wheel turning. He was like, yeah, that's pretty good, but uh, you know, see, we need something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, here me another example. So I just completely made this up. <laughs> I said, all right. I mean, I, and I, I will admit it, right? I mean, I will admit when I just completely make something up. I've said this before. So I look at him and I said, okay, there's an ancient Japanese. Because I was really super into, you know, being a warrior. I know it sounds like crap, but I mean, being a warrior, taking the strongest to the end, seven layers of Viking heaven, the American Indians. Like I, I, before I went out there, I'm like, if I'm going to be a warrior, I want to study these warrior cultures around the world and the Japanese and the Mongols. And a lot of people are, 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 have misconceptions about the Mongols. They actually valued women, uh, fighters mm-hmm. that were good enough. They were experts on horseback, but they were also masters of retreat. They, they, they gave themselves the an analogy of water. They would seek the weakness. And if there was no weakness and it was strong, they would, they would practice over and over again that art of retreating so that they could penetrate in another area. And so I've got all these thoughts in my mind about these warrior cultures and I've Anyway, so I've studied them, and I talked about the samurai, so that's why this came up. And I said, there's an ancient Japanese samurai proverb that says, in order to defeat the army and win the war, you need to cut the head off the dragon. I completely okay. made that up. I don't know if there's a Japanese samurai proverb, but it sounded pretty fucking good at the time. And so I zinged <laughs> it out there. And when I zinged it out there, his, the look on his face, I will never forget. He was like, oh, shit. And so he said to me, <laughs> So if you slay the dragon, that makes you the dragon slayer. And I said, and that, and it actually made it to that final 
that final edit is made at past the cutting room floor and not in a secret scene, but on the the show. And uh-huh. I said, Hey, you, you can call me coach Wade or the dragon slayer. I don't care what you call me, <laughs> but you know, this game is about me now or something like that. So I said that, <laughs> but it was at that moment that I realized everything that I said was going to go on the cutting room floor unless I really stepped up my game. And so yeah. it was at that point that I started bringing it. And so did they egg me on? Not really. Did they, did they lead me in, into a direction? Yes. All the stuff that I said was original. They never say, hey, why don't you say this? You know, hey, why don't you say, if I slay the dragon, I'm going to become the dragon slayer. It was all stuff that I was coming up with, but it was really at that point that I was like, wow, this game's about me now. And I say it, I say it in a confessional. I snap my finger. I said, this game's all about me now. And what I'm saying mm-hmm. is... I'm going to bring it so that nobody forgets who I am because now I'm going to start thinking what is going to make it past the cutting room floor. And that started seriously influencing my decisions and my actions for the rest of the game. Yeah. And that's something I don't think a lot of Survivor fans always get, that it's really not so much just go out there and be yourself and assume the producers are going to give you airtime. Like, a lot, I've heard this other players tell me this as well. You got to go out there and grab that airtime. You got to make them make sure they show you on TV, and that's basically what you did. And again, I, there just this, what we do is we talk about Survivor history. There'd been no one who had done anything like that on Survivor up to that point, except maybe Johnny Fairplay. Fairplay, there's you know, you, I'm, you, I'm not sure how. Have you watched all the seasons? You know, Johnny Fairplay with the dead grandma lie at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I heard that when he did that and he made up the lie about his grandma and basically tricked everyone, that one of the producers basically turned to him and said, you son of a bitch, you're now the star of the season. You took over the season. So it's just one of those things where you kind of you have this narrative, you took it, you took it over and you're going to guarantee yourself airtime. And and again, a lot of fans, I think, to this, maybe not so much now, but at the time would give you crap. They say, oh, coach is a camera hog. He's just, you know, he's aggrandizing. He's whatever the whatever the term is, where you just, you know, try to get attention and try to get more airtime. But like, that's kind of what you have to do as a player if you want to get airtime. Like, you make sure you have a story that they can't ignore. True. Yep. But it, yeah. but it also has to be valid, right? I mean, it, it has to be. And when I say valid, I'm saying that it's either got to be something a little bit crazy mm-hmm. or something where you you know, have an anger problem or something, you know, like Debbie. And mm-hmm. I know that, that people don't like her, that, that, you know, a lot of people don't like her. They think that she's just doing whatever. But, I mean, the the eclecticness and the mm-hmm. crazy is, is is actually there. And that's cool. And crazy is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's got, it's got to be valid. These people that come out there and, you know, roll their eyes or an extra big, oh, oh spaghetti or whatever it is to try to get those moments mm-hmm. it doesn't ring true and so i think that that it, it ends up kind of ringing false i mean the best thing about survivors when you're looking at somebody and you're really trying to figure them out and do we really like them or do we really not like them you know that's one of the funnest parts for the first half of the season mm-hmm. is to really figure out who you're rooting for and who you are not rooting for yeah. and who you like and who you don't like and why at least I do that. I'm sure you do, yeah. do that too. And mm-hmm. a lot of people do that subconsciously, but I do that now consciously. Mm-hmm. And so when you have something that actually has a ring of truth, even if it's a, if it's a ring of truth in somebody that's being untruthful, it's still there. Yeah. And it's still valid. So, I mean, it is. And you know, I mean, the thing is, is that 
I was showing people different parts of my personality. I'm a storyteller. I'm a, you know, kayaker. I'm a this, I'm a that. And I was trying to bring that all into one delicious package for everybody to swallow and say, this is a tasty. Hey, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. Again, I love almost every experience, every moment of coaching token genes, even though the ones you might be a little sensitive for. I, mean, I just hope people have learned to appreciate those over the years. I know, although a lot of people have asked me, like, ask coach, what does he think about, you know, he kind of started this archetype, the guy who's larger than life, who kind of takes over the season. It all becomes about him. What do you think about the players who have kind of been cast to follow your footsteps? And the ones people have mentioned, Debbie, Debbie's one that comes up a lot. And Philip is the other one. They say Philip was kind of trying to be coached. Like, how do you respond to something like that? Do you see Philip as trying to be coached or do you think Philip was literally kind of like that? And it's possible you don't even know Philip. Maybe you don't even know the answer to this. No, no, no. No, I've no, met him. I've talked to him several times. I think that, you know, here's the thing. I- imitation is a, is a wonderful form of flattery. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was watching... They make you watch episodes in uh, in, in uh, casting, mm-hmm. and they also suggest that you bone up on your episodes as well. So they have all of the seasons on DVD. You can just mm-hmm. ask for them in your hotel room. You're doing nothing. You're on lockdown in your hotel room, so why not watch you know 100 hours of the sh- of a show that you might be on? And so mm-hmm. I know that those people that are going through casting are watching. I know that. You know, I'm sure that one of the seasons that they sh- that they give them is token teams. When I was there, they were giving us Pearl Island and China, and All Stars mm-hmm. and Vanuatu. Those were those are the ones that they were giving us that they were pushing the most. Hmm, and I know that they're talking about. I know that they're talking about me because the people have told me that. Yeah. Um, you know, even even Russell Hance when he was going through casting, they were showing me they were showing what i was doing he was like coach man i gotta be somebody like coach i gotta be a personality that is that stands out mm-hmm. and and so you're subconsciously or consciously sharpening and developing who you think you're going to be right i mean all babies um up until the age of five really use imitation um as how they perceive they're in this kind of a dreamlike world where they are part of uh, the world itself and the, their subconscious is continually streaming, but they're a part of the world and they're in it and they're in a life cycle of the universe. When they turn nine, then all of a sudden they disconnect from that. It's their first time where they have a true identity of self mm-hmm. versus the world. And it's why, you know, stuff happens in school and everything becomes a bigger deal because it becomes more personal and they're a little bit more disconnected with the, with the universe. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's that, that initial stage. It's when you're new to something, you know, you're really looking at people and imitating people. And so I think that as you look at Philip, even Russell, Debbie, you know, that they were looking at somebody like me saying, this is a great way to be noticed, to have a, a game that's different. And we all pick people, you know, ironically, mm-hmm. I picked Tom Westman to imitate. <laughs> because I thought this was a really stand-up, strong warrior, and I, I imitated him, and I made no secret that he was my, you know, survivor hero. So, yeah. anyway, I think that it's just natural for people to do that, whether they realize they're doing it or not. Mm-hmm. I don't think Philip said, I'm going to go out there and be a poor man's coach, mm-hmm. 
that's, you know, I mean, that's what he ended up being, but yeah. I like, I like, you know, it keeps us relevant. Yeah. Now when people are, are out there trying to be like you. That's good for me. Absolutely. No, I mean, just in the annals of survivor history, you're going to go down as a legend because so many people try to be you or imitate you. Now, are the producers saying this too? Have you heard about this? Like when these players are watching your season, are they telling these players, we want you to be like coach, that's what you need to be doing stuff? Or did they just, did the players just pick that up on their own? No, the players picked that up on their own. Actually, you know, I got to tell you, when I was going through casting and earlier and early on in my first season, I started bringing up people mm-hmm. and, and they were like, don't say that. Don't talk <laughs> like that. I said in yeah. casting one time, I, I think I said something like, you know, I want to be one of the biggest characters in history. I didn't really realize at the time what I was saying, but <laughs> I said that and Lynn Spielman got pissed at me. She was like, don't ever say that again. Don't ever say that in front of anybody. You're not out here to be a big character. Huh. You're out here to be yourself. And they got really mad at me. And so I, I, I don't think that they're, comparing that to anybody, but when they shove token jeans into the DVD player before somebody goes out there, obviously that's going to have a big impression on them. I would imagine, I don't know what they show now, Mm -hmm. but I would imagine that they show Russell's first season. They show my season Mm -hmm. and they show, you know, like like the, uh, Micronesia. You you hear Micronesia a lot with Parvati. That's the one you hear a lot gets shown to people. There you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I think that they just pick it up. Okay, cool. Um, can I ask you about a couple players and token chains here? I had a bunch of questions people wanted to run by you about other players from that season. Yep. Yep. Brendan. Brendan is one that comes up a lot, not surprisingly. Uh, here's an exact quote from one of my uh, listeners. He said, here's an interesting question. In the first episode, Coach tries to form a bond with Brendan because he considers him one of the strongest. But after that, they're out to get each other. Why did he change his mind about working with Brendan, and when in the game did it occur? Now, you kind of touched on that a little, that you know, Brenda was kind of coming after you, but when exactly does that happen? And when does that, you know, when, when was this in the timeline, the whole dragon slayer thing kind of came up between you and Brendan? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, that's a really good question. You know, Brendan was the guy that I saw in the beginning that I thought this guy's going to be strong. Mm-hmm. He's going to be, you know, we knew about bare naked. Uh, we thought this guy's going to be, one of the best. I thought so. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with him and I was like, you know, man, let's go. Dude. I said on that first day, I said, let's go all the way, man. You and me strongest to the end, strongest. Let's have it. The survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he was like, and he, he said something like, it's like the first day, man. Like, hold on. I said, come on, man. I want you to commit. Do you want to play the game with me? And he was like, yeah, yeah, we'll see coach, you know, sounds good, but you know, I want to keep my options open. He said something like that right off the bat. And so, I kind of backed off a little bit, still wanted to play with him. Um, and, you know, then he just, everything he did was kind of counterproductive for himself. I remember asking him one day because everybody was like, man, he owns owned bare naked. So, you know, obviously he's a survivalist and he's outdoors. He's from Colorado. And, you know, let's figure out what to do from him, shelter, the fire pit, everything. And everything we were doing, we had to do two or three times because not, I'm not an expert. At least, I mean, I know not to sleep with your head towards towards the ground so that you wake up with a migraine every day. And I know, you know, not to put the fire pit. Anyway, I mean, there are just different things that, that he was suggesting and everybody was doing it because he was bare naked, bare naked. So I asked him, I asked him like, you know, weekend. I said, dude, I said, man, you know, you're obviously, I was 
trying to, you know, suck up to him. I said, hey, you're obviously outdoor, you know, da 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 Tell me, you know, like how, how, how often, the, you know, a year do you go backcountry? Do you go mountaineering? Do you go off the trail? You know, I go out with a compass and just try to find my way. Da da da. And he said, no, I've never really done that. He's like, he said, I camp a couple of times. Like I did go on a survival uh, crash course because I knew I was coming out here, but I don't really do any of that kind of stuff. And so that, you know, it just was a continually eroding of this guy. I thought he was going to be the man out here. And, you know, he's not really. And, you know, there was a battle for leadership. And I can mm-hmm. just tell, you know, the way he was, he was treating me that he felt like I was kind of beneath him. Mm-hmm. And so, but as we get, as we get to the merge and everybody's, you know, trying to draw those sides and Jalapal, you know, is down in numbers. So we feel like we have casualties that we can expend i'm talking about who to vote off tyson's talking about and and i think it was tyson said you know brendan's thinking about you or maybe jt said brendan's thinking about you mm-hmm. so it became something that we needed to do immediately you know okay maybe we were going to get rid of aaron first um somebody that was kind of on the edge that, that was or, you know we we're going to get rid of one of those people but as soon as i heard that and there was no question, you know, he's got to go next. If Brendan had come to me and said, you know, let's go all the way to the end, mm-hmm. especially that first season, I would have been gullible. Yeah. You know, I mean, if he would have said, dude, we're going to the end together, even if he didn't mean it, I wouldn't have voted him off. I would have thought yeah. him, Tyson, me, JT, you know, those are the people that need to be in the final four. Yeah. So it was more him, him coming after you first and you just realizing you had to save yourself. Yeah, I mean, and also kind of, you know, thinking that he was not ever really talking strategy. He was never really trying to bond with me. He was always trying to just poke just a little bit mm-hmm. in who I was. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, kind of a combination of those things. For me, though, the, the, the urgency of, of uh, him throwing down the gauntlet first obviously made me say, we've got to do this. And that's when I said, this guy's my enemy. You know, okay. I've given him everything. I've given him the golden chalice. Here it is, man. Yeah. I'll, I'll play to the end <laughs> with you. I'm stupid enough because I don't know the game of Survivor where I will do this. And he didn't take that cup that was offered to him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was his, obviously his, his, to his demise. Fortunately, I could have very easily been voted off that time. Yeah. But, now, when the episodes aired, Brendan was the one taking, I mean, of all the people there, taking a lot of digs at you and the confessionals and stuff like that. Is that something you would have expected from him, or did it catch you off guard? Like, did you kind of have a playful relationship where that was cool, or was it weird to see him talking crap about you behind your back in the confessionals? Well, I mean, you know, when you first start watching it, your face burns every time somebody says something bad about you. Chances are you're not watching it by yourself. Yeah. Even if you are watching it by yourself, you're probably going to be embarrassed when you're mm-hmm. watching it with you know, 40, 50, I was watching it with 150 people every week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was, we were actually doing a series of my church. So they'd show it on the big screen and then I'd do a <laughs> Q and a afterwards. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't, I expected it, you know, but at the same time it was, it was embarrassing and it was a yeah. surprise just in the, in the number of times. Yeah. You know, Aaron, I can expect, although, you know, I mean, like we go to the airport and we're flying back and we're in Miami and we're all exhausted. And Brendan, you know, I see Brendan, we got off the plane, we're going two different ways. And then we ended up crossing paths again. And, 
you know, he's obviously super wealthy. At the time, I was not. And mm-hmm. uh, so he goes into the the Admiral's Club of the American Airlines and mm-hmm. goes in there. It could have easily taken me in there. And he's like, all right, coach, I'll see you later. And literally just puts <laughs> the door closed on me. And I'm like, I got no money. You know, I'm just trying to get down to California to conduct my symphony concert. And we're all half half crazy mm-hmm. at that point. And so just, I, I'll never forget that. I know my team, he probably doesn't even remember that. But I just know that, especially going through something like that with mm-hmm. people, you know, it's a bond. Sophie, yeah. Ozzy, all those people, people that I feel have wronged me, Russell, um, Sandra, man, you know, you, you bonded and you don't really turn your back on somebody mm-hmm. like that. Um, anyway, I mean, it's my, my team's small, but to me it was big in my book. And so I understood Brandon now from Brandon. Yeah. So if that's going to take the form of cutting me down every episode that he can, Mm-hmm. it wasn't as much of a surprise as you would think. Okay. One thing I wanted to mention that you had just talked about is that one thing, this isn't really a question, but a lot of times Survivor fans have a hard time stepping back from the show a little bit and realizing that, you know, it's real people that have done this and real people have been filmed and real people are being mocked on TV. Like, I would just like to say to anyone listening to this, just imagine gathering 150 of your friends through a church group and you're going to go watch TV together with you on it and getting the edit that coach got every week. And just imagine having to sit there and watch that with your friends. So I just, I always like to point out stuff like that to, uh, to our listeners that like they, that tend to remember that survivors are people that have been through this. And that would be tough to do. I mean, I don't have to tell you, obviously I'm sure that was, that was incredibly tough. Yeah. I mean, it was tough. It was tough. Even in the good edits, there's always mm-hmm. going to be times. I mean, nobody wants to see me you know, hero, hero, hero every episode, even if you were a hero. I mean, one of the things that drove me the craziest about South Pacific was watching the end of the game mm-hmm. and just watching people be systematically voted off and me sitting there talking about honor and integrity. I want to slap myself and say, dude, stop talking about it. Yeah. If you're doing it, great. Stop talking about it. And I, I was cringing every time I said that. And mm-hmm. It was boring and, you know, Nobody wants to see somebody on top all the time. So even in a great edit, you're going to, you know, you have a little bit of made fun of and this and that. Yeah. But all the episodes, all the episodes that I watched were nerve wracking, no matter who I was watching with. Although yeah. I got to tell you, I got to tell you a really funny one. The best, the best ever was when the best watch ever of an episode was when we were watching the episode after Brendan had gotten voted out. And I went down to L.A. And mm-hmm. I watched it in Sierra's apart- apartment. So Sierra was there. Her mother was there. I want to say Tyson was there. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know why we were all down in L.A., but we were all down there. And we're watching it. And I'm, t- I'm telling the TV, I'm saying, you know, Sierra's the bowel movement. <laughs> you know, she's the, she's the dung of the bung of the dragon. And she's freaking slapping. <laughs> it was so crazy. And her mom was all pissed off. So, I mean, and right, I mean, this is like one thing that you're great at is that I'll sit there and pontificate and say, you know, Brendan has no character because he freaking left me at the door of the Admiral's Club uh-huh. in, in in Miami. And, you know, of course, somebody of no character would sit there and, and rip on me. At the same time, I'm, I'm ripping on people in my confessionals. However, I have impeccable character. I would never leave anybody there. You know, but that's one of the things that really you have enlightened.
me to is just <laughs> saying that when I'm just like holier than thou and preaching, and then I'm doing the exact same thing. But oh, wait, for me, I do have impeccable character. I actually, <laughs> if I say yes, because I have said no, if I say yes and go out there for one last time for myself, I'm definitely going to have to use that in a confessional as to how I use those double standards to my own benefit greatly. Okay. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Cause that's one of those things that the fans used to hate you for. Oh, this guy's a hypocrite. I hate this guy. He's such a low life. He says one thing and does the other, but like when I'm writing these things, I'm like, well, yeah, he does that, but let's look at it in a fun way, in a comic way. So I always try to steer it in a way where people will kind of laugh at it and appreciate it rather than just hate you for it. So that's, I really did try to get people to, Look at this. It's kind of fun what he's doing if you if you appreciate it. Yeah, so I'm glad yeah. I'm glad you appreciated it as well. I did indeed. Okay, cool. Um okay, another uh player uh I wanted to ask you about was Steven. Steven Fishback came up with a lot of questions. And it really there's only one question people ask all the time. Steven Fishback, beloved now, he hosts Rob has a podcast. He's one of the know-it-alls. He is considered one of the foremost, you know, survivor fans, survivor experts. Everyone likes the guy. Everyone asks, why the hell did he, did he get no votes? Was there something we just didn't see in those episodes? Because they watched the season, and they're like, well, yeah, JT should have won. JT was all charming. But Steven wasn't a zero-vote goat. Like, he wasn't that bad. So they're all like, what are we missing that made him so unworthy in the eyes of the jury? Is there something there you can kind of fill people in on at the end? Absolutely. You know, he and I have actually talked about this. And he did call me before he went on his last stint and asked me for advice about some different things. But, uh, you know, he and I talked about this and in that final jury, he was very worried about, and I think that we all are a little bit to some extent, the friendships that you've built with the people that are there. If you have friendships that you have built with people that are there with you. Mm-hmm. And so I remember at that final tribal, you know, there was not one time where he stood up for himself and JT would say something and, and he would throw it Steven under the bus a little bit and Steven would go to say something and then he'd look at him and put his hand on his shoulder. You know, JT was a, was a great actor in that last, that last tribal. And, you know, coach, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, man. I, I didn't, I didn't put you on the jury. I didn't vote for you coach. You know, and Stephen wanted to go say something and didn't. And, you know, I mean, the truth was, if Stephen would have said, you know, listen, man, you're totally full of shit. These people are seeing one side of you. You're presenting one side. You mm-hmm. knew Coach was going home. You could have saved him. You could have told yeah. me, don't vote for Coach. Let's save him. And I would have saved him because we voted the same way. You know, and so Stephen did not call JT on anything at the end. And so we were sitting there watching it and just, you know, JT, man, I'm so sorry, coach. I didn't vote you out. And guys, I just, I'm a poor, dumb country boy. And, and Steven would just sit there and say, yeah, you know, I just, I did vote you guys out and I know you don't like me. And, and JT really, you know, man, he never refuted anything that was said. And so I think that if he would have just said, I don't care about JT's friendship, I'm going to take the gloves off. And let's go at it like men and be friends afterward. It would have been a lot different. I bet that that haunts him. And I, I'm sure as he and I talked about, you know, getting second 
um, is a very difficult thing to do. It's almost better to get voted out mm-hmm. fifth, and then you know you're not that close. But but coming in second is a very difficult pill to swallow because then every single final tribal council that you watch afterward, then you think about it. Now, I don't sit yeah. there at episode five and say, man, what could I have done differently? You know, this this last season. Episode, not episode five, but uh, when there's final five. Final Final five, man. Oh, gosh, I wish I would have done something different in the final five. Mm -hmm. You don't think like that. Yeah. You You could have told a better poem. You could have told a better poem. Yeah, exactly. You know, you don't think like that. But when you make it to final travel and you miss it. So, yeah, he was definitely Mm -hmm. deserving of a vote. I mean, if I would have known what I know now, that they were in cahoots. I mean, I would have probably pontificated about it. I would have said, you know, you got a guy masquerading around as an honorable man who's not, and you have a guy that's masquerading around as a dishonorable man, but is honorable in admitting it, you know, which one is better? So that would have been a great ending, but they didn't want that. I don't think anybody wanted that that season. They just wanted JT's a slam dunk. Everybody's going to love him, and that's the end of it. So there was no choice. There was no chance JT was going to lose that final vote. Basically, I don't think there was. I don't think that he was going to lose. But I think that if Stephen would have kicked up a fuss, I think he would have gotten more votes. Yeah. I think he could have made it. I, he could have made it close if he yeah. really would have called JT on it, and if JT would have admitted it, if he would have said JT admit it, you say you know if you say that you're honorable or whatever JT was saying. I mean, if you're being truthful, then you tell me right now why did Coach go home. He knew he was going home, right? Yeah. You know, or whatever. If you would have called him on stuff and JT would have admitted to it, then I think it would have changed the votes. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that one of the theories I've always had about Survivor, and again, I've been writing since the first season, so I can have a long history with the show, that one of the things that seems to be prevalent over and over and over is the person who has the hardest time after the show is the person who gets to the end and loses the jury vote. And I see this time and time again with players that I meet it's always the jury vote loser that's devastated. It's never the person that was voted out. It's like, and I always just kind of call that position of shame. And it's not like they have anything to feel bad about. That's just the one that you're going to regret it for a long time. And I, I'm sure I'm preaching right to the choir here since you once finished in the position of shame yourself that I, I, I can guarantee that, yeah, Stephen was haunted by that, much like I'm sure you were haunted by it in South Pacific. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay, well, I have, a, I have a, follow, a follow-up question about that here. Someone asked about, uh, the losing finalists in all three of the seasons, someone pointed out every time coach played, someone got to the end and got zero jury votes. And he wants to know which one of these three would you give the most credit to? Would you give it the most credit to Steven and token chains, Russell in heroes versus villains or Albert in South Pacific? Who do you think you would give the most credit to out of all those three? And I'm guessing you're probably not going to say Russell. So we can skip that one. No, I mean, I think, you know, like you look at these, I, I actually think, so who gets the most credit for not winning? I'd say Russell. So you do say Russell. Okay. Um, I do say Russell. I can't stand him. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have a different moral compass, but because I know him, I mean, I know him quote unquote in real life. I mean, we all interact in some way outside the game. Anyway, so, but I would say Russell, I mean, they're three different and I would actually say all three of them. And, mm-hmm. and here's why. Russell should have won, didn't win, bitter jury. I've seen that before, even if you want to disagree. Um, but I think that, you know, Russell, you look back on it, you look at it in perspective, you know, and he should have won. Um, you look at Steven, he has gotten that credit. Mm-hmm. 
I think he should have gotten some votes. But I really feel bad for Albert. Mm-hmm. You know, he and I were, were buds on day one, and we made decisions together, and we only got crossways a couple of times. Um, but I think he gets, I think that he just, he just was not, he just was not white. And yeah. it really happened near the, I think it really happened near the end. I actually think probably his problem is that he really started pandering for jury votes mm-hmm. as we got down to the final eight or so. And he really started talking to those people on the bottom as if he were going to save them, mm-hmm. knowing that he wasn't going to save, knowing that he wasn't going to save them but doing it to kind of get in their corner. And I called him out on it. And I said, next time I do so funny. <laughs> I know this is not about South, South Pacific, but man, you know, the way that we ran things and mm-hmm. a lot of it came from me, but I just said, look, man, this is going to be like La Familia. This is going to be like the Gestapo. You freaking go against <laughs> the family and we're going to cut you off at the knees. I don't know if that ever made an episode, but I mean, I said it multiple times and Albert mm-hmm. was pandering for jury votes and I got the, I got the four of us together or maybe the five, including Edna. I just said, "Is this? Are we going to allow this? Mm-hmm. Because we talked about this, right? We're going to play to a five. Gloves are off. Then whatever." And everybody was like, "No, look at him. Look what he's doing." And so we called him over, and I actually said in front of everybody, "I said, Albert, if you do this again, man, I love you, but you're gone." Yeah. So I think that maybe him just not ringing true, mm-hmm. and, and the producers knew that. So from the top down. He just became a non-factor. I, did, I actually went into that yeah. final tribal council thinking that it was going to be against me and Albert because Sophie had had such bad memories of her friend passing mm-hmm. away. You know, she checked out. She checked out for the for the last 10 of the, until the two days were left. She checked out for 10 days. Wow. Didn't talk to yeah. anybody. Sat on the beach and, and caused a lot of people. You know, I actually stuck up for her in one of the tribal councils when somebody was ripping on her. And mm-hmm. I just said, don't you dare, don't you dare, Pope. you don't know what she's walking. You haven't walked in her shoes. You don't know what she's going through. So I actually thought that that final travel was going to be about me and Albert. I didn't think that Sophie was going to even be, you know, an issue, which is on my part foolish because if you don't prepare for your adversary, absolutely, you're going to lose. It's the enemy you don't see coming who's the most dangerous. Yep, yep. Okay, uh, well, I got a couple more token chains people I wanted to ask about, if you're good with that. Um, how do you feel about Sierra? And someone pointed out, I felt with that when uh, Sierra was throwing Coach's pep talk back at him, she was being really strong and three-dimensional. And he said, this contradicts everything else that everyone said about her in the season. There, people would say she was an idiot or a pushover or just unpleasant. But with you, she had some really good three-dimensional scenes, and it seems like you guys were pretty good friends. Like, Was that true? Was that realistic to what your relationship was in the game? Well, you know, I mean, our, our, so our relationship was very interesting. You know, in the beginning, I think it was a little bit like, oh, you know, she's not my type, but I kind of like her. And she was like, oh, you know, maybe he's a little bit older or whatever. He's not my type. But there was definitely something mm-hmm. in the beginning. There, I mean, there was a little, listen, man, I was younger then, right? So, yeah. I, you know. You're I, a bachelor. I had a, I, I had, I had a little bit of game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, something like me and Candace, there's a little, little farting going on. So, I mean, it was like that in the beginning with Sierra, too. I see now that, you know, Sierra threw all of her eggs into Brendan's basket. So she couldn't really bond with the rest of us when she was off doing sneaky stuff like that. I mean, listen, you know, that back then, that was old school survivor just about. And people really wanted to get to know each other. And I think that still happens. But the focus is more on big moves and gameplay 
mm-hmm. it was then. It was, you know, true just going out there and trying to to figure out the people and the environment and then the game in that order. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had it, we, but we had a good relationship and I, I just, I feel bad on my part. She wasn't very clairvoyant. There was one time where she gave an incredible three dimensional speech speech. And even the producers were like, Holy crap. After the game was over, she just laid everything out and just mm-hmm. about everything that she said came to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I look back on that and as I was watching it, I just thought, wow, why couldn't I, you know, if I was a, if I knew what I knew now, I would have just taken her aside and said, look, let's go. Mm-hmm. Let's be allies. But I was stupid and didn't say that. And there was a great vote and alliance and possibly a couple of people that she could have brought in that would have turned the tables and we wouldn't have gotten, you know, blindsided one after another. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, our relationship, our, our relationship was good. Was she annoying? Yeah. Was she young? Yeah. You know, I mean, at that time, my friends were all fifties. Mm-hmm. It's changed now. Marrying a younger, hotter wife was <laughs> a great thing for me. Mm-hmm. But I mean, at the time I was 38 going on 50 and she was, I don't know how old she was, but 23 going on, you know, 20. So that, that there was a big age difference there. Yeah. And I think that that was part of it. I, I, but I liked her. I mean, in hindsight, yeah, she was annoying. But I mean, everybody can be annoying out there. I wish I would have done things differently and taken her under my wing. And instead, yeah. you know, I was brutal. Tyson was brutal. And, you know, we just kind of ran her into the ground at the end. Yeah. All right. Here's an interesting question about the final five. Someone had asked, from the from the final five in Token Chains, who do you think would have beaten you if they made the final tribal council? Like, I, like you probably would predict you'd lose to JT, correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. What about like Steven or Aaron or Taj? Do you think you could have beaten any of them? No. No. So you don't think you could have I, beaten I anybody? That, while I was out there at the time, I was like, absolutely, I can beat all these people. Uh-huh. Understanding how juries work now. Mm-hmm. If I had gotten to the end and said, I never lied to any of you, here would have said, well, yeah, you did lie that one day to me. Mm-hmm. If I was on the vote and Taj would, you know, what was Taj going to do? She's going to roll her eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Debbie would have voted for me. Tyson would have voted for me. I would have had two votes. That's it. Okay. So I don't think I would have beaten anybody at the end. Okay. That's good. It's an honest answer. Um, okay. A lot of people, I got to bring this up now, your final episode. Obviously one of the more legendary episodes in Survivor history. I know I've made quite a name for myself writing about your final episode. You love you like your final episode, right? I know you said you haven't watched it in a while, but you do like the, your final episode. Actually, I will not be able to answer this question unless you rephrase what you just said. I, I heard you say mm-hmm. that it was one of the. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I sorry. I will not coach. talk about that unless yes. you admit. You tell me where there is a better send-off episode than that one from start to finish, airtime creative arc and the character you, you right. tell me if there's a better one out there i don't think i haven't i haven't added much to the game of survivor <laughs> okay i'm just a scrap adder yeah. okay but uh, one thing that i can say is i've never seen somebody revered even if they're being revered for being foolish i haven't seen anybody revered like that in an episode at least <laughs> i can take that to the bank. will you please admit that 
I will I will admit that with an asterisk because there is one other episode, one other episode. You may not know this because you don't know all the in and out of every episode like I do in Survivor history. There's one other send-off episode that I think can come in the same ballpark as yours, and that is Rupert's send-off in Pearl Islands. And again, you don't have to call me out on that because you probably don't know it off the top of your head. Some of our listeners will know this to say the amount of love they put into Rupert getting blindsided by Fair Play and all them. It's a fantastic episode. But I do think yours is better because yours is way more over the top and they gave you theme music. Rupert never got theme music. (laughs) Okay, anyway, so all joking aside, and I haven't seen Rupert's episode, but uh, anyway. It was a pretty awesome last episode. What's, what, what is your question about this episode? Well, yeah, a couple of people have asked, like, does Coach like that episode? Does he find it silly? Like, what about the scene when you come limping back from Exile Island and, you, and uh, you're marching up the hill and you have the, the cane and everyone says he's mugging for attention? Like, does Coach feel silly watching that? Does he like that episode? I'm just curious what your thoughts on this episode are, especially, again, your trip to Exile Island, your return, and then your whole big uh, challenge loss where you end up losing to JT there in the balance. So, I'll tell you. I've only watched, like, I have not watched any episodes after they aired. I watched them one time, usually with a group of people, and so I've never watched any of my seasons over again. I'd like to. I just, like, my, my, I want to watch it with my family. My kids aren't really old enough yet. So I keep holding off on that. I don't know what I would know. I don't know. I would just tell you what my initial reaction was. You know, I'd, I'd mm-hmm. gone through a lot of flack, a lot of people, a lot of angry people. And so I fly to New York. They flew me to New York on Wednesday night because I was going to do a boatload of interviews in person. Mm-hmm. That was back when it was on Wednesday, right? Was it on Wednesday? It was on uh, Wednesday, so yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so Thursday, Friday, it was all, I mean, it was like a madhouse of live in-person interviews back then. Anyway, so I fly, fly to New York. I asked for somebody that's from CBS that they could please have the episode ready for me to watch on my laptop when I get to the hotel room because I need to watch it. I need to be able to answer questions on it. They didn't have the CBS online where you could watch it. So they had the, they had the episode waiting for me. I sit down. I remember this very, very distinctly. I'm in a hotel right across from central park. I get in late, probably midnight. I get into the hotel, queue up the episode and start watching it. And it was, it was awesome. <laughs> Start to finish. I mean, that's what I want. I, that's what I want you to hear to say. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I really did. I know it's crazy. I know that there's still some comedic stuff in there, but I really felt, I really felt honored. I felt value. All the shit I was talking, mm-hmm. you know, is it true? Is it not? I look at myself and I wept. I wept when I watched myself on exile, because I had no idea that I was pushing my body to that extreme before I went to exile. And I said, Hey, this is what I'm going to do because let's face it. Jeff was correct. I was scared shitless. I didn't know Mm -hmm. what I was going to do as far as if I build a fire, I'm pretty sure I can make a fire, but if I don't, and it's, I'm going to be alone and everybody's talking about how miserable it's going to be and da, 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 da. And it's like harsh and there's no shelter and there's this and there's that. And so what do I do? I do what I do 
you know, in life. And that is, I say, I make it more challenging. I make it more extreme to psych myself up mentally to do it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm totally rattled to go. I don't want to go. But as I'm preparing to go and I'm talking about, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to have any water. I'm not going to have any food. And that's what I'm going to do. The doctors came over to me and they begged me. They said, don't do this. Your body already, you know, you've lost tons of weight. You're on the edge. Your body's, you know, going to shut down. You've got to eat. You've got to drink. So they were actually like really afraid. You could tell they don't interfere, you know, unless somebody's really hurt, but they interfered before I was hurt because they said, don't do this. And so I'm watching the episode and I'm watching my body absolutely on the brink. I mean, look, man, I'm 205 in casting. I leaned out a little bit right before I get on the show, but essentially, you know, September 30th, I'm 205 pounds and December, whenever it was on exile, I'm 149 pounds and they, they weighed me and I was 149 pounds. And that's after I ate and ate and ate all the way to Ponderosa. And after I ate a huge meal of Ponderosa, I was 149. I had a 26 inch waist. I had a, I lost eight inches of muscle on my chest. You look at my body, I'm fucked. And so, you know, you can say whatever you want to say. You can look at everybody else's body out there. And I'm going to tell you right now, when I said I gave my food away to people, I freaking gave my food away to people. They couldn't even walk around camp on day 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. They were absolutely just, they couldn't handle it. And I'm taking Mm -hmm. hour, two hour walks every day, exploring, doing stuff. I feel great. And I feel like when I have less, my body detoxes, I actually feel better than if I'm sitting here eating every day, whatever. Okay. So, you know, I look at my body and I'm sitting there thinking, man, I push my body past all limits. Yeah. And yet the stuff that's coming out of my mouth is awesome. It's brilliant. <laughs> I'm sitting there, cross-legged, staff. And it's like, I still got that staff, man. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, when we do this, I'll take a picture of it and, you know, retweet it, whatever. And, but, I mean, I, I still have that staff. It was a tree that was struck by lightning. That's a national protected area. I can't believe they even let me get out of the country with that. Mm-hmm. So, but, I mean, it's like I'm sitting there with the staff sitting there. I'm completely emaciated. They've just given me this sweet edit, little Tai Chi with staff. Mm-hmm. Totally for the cameras, that one was. On top of the sand dune. And it's like, man. Marcus Aurelius said that, you know, through our greatest, uh, whatever it was, adversities come our greatest successes. I still use those five minutes of straight unedited exile. I still use those in a, in a preface before my motivational talk sometimes. And I thought, wow. I, I don't really talk about Survivor, but you look at that from when I start walking up the hill and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm watching this edit and I'm just, you know, that whole thing where I'm like, and it was valid. I wasn't not actually. It was very little of this was for the cameras. At this point, I was at such a starved and exalted state. And when I say exalted, I mean any monk will tell you: you go out in the wilderness, you starve yourself. You look at the American Indians. You look at how they went out there and they went on their vision quest. And how did they do? Go on their vision quest? Not by sitting around smoking a peace pipe and you know getting high and seeing visions. No, they went out had nothing. He went out mm-hmm. in the wilderness, no shelter, no food, and they got wrecked. 
And as they were getting wrecked and they realized, I can't rely on my body anymore. I have to rely on a higher being. I have to rely on the creator of the universe. When they started relying on that deity, they found this untapped power that came back to them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there in this exalted state saying, you know, here's the deal. Coach Wade and this character, who I am, is not shaken. You can say whatever you, and, I, and really what, it was prophetic because I had no idea just how much my very poor foundation of my character was going to be shaken when I got off and realized that I was the laughingstock and yeah. the mockery and the hatred from so many people. And so, but, I, but what I was saying was, dude, you can't touch this. Mm -hmm. Look at who you are and what miserable, pathetic lives you're going to go back to. And I am including <laughs> if you go back to owning bare naked granola. You guys aren't, you know, you guys can go back to your little miserable, pathetic life. You can't touch this. <laughs> and they couldn't. And there was that deep-seated root of my unbreakable character that nobody was going to touch. No matter how much you make fun of me, I'm still going to accomplish great things in life. No matter how much you tell me, I haven't done what I've done. I know that I've done it, and I know that I'm going to continue to do things that are extraordinary. I'm an ordinary person, but I want to do extraordinary things in this life, and hopefully I've been given the opportunity to do that time and time again. And so I watched the episode, and I wept at how much I had pushed myself past extreme. Mm -hmm. I wept, and I got chills walking up that mountain, and the music is rising. I felt honored. I felt valued. And even the little zings of me coming back to camp and the, you know, the rolling of the eyes and the, and the cane mm -hmm. or the staff or whatever you want to call it, I have a picture of me walking in. And it's side by side to a picture of me on the first day. Mm -hmm. And you look at that body and you can say whatever you want to. I don't care because it's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's where the Pat Benatar quote comes in. Hit me with your best shot. <laughs> I don't think I forgot oh, that boy. one. <laughs> no, I just... I'm per, even I was, people on, I was on, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that whether people like you or don't like you or appreciate that episode or don't, you have to look at the cinematography, and this is something we talked about on Historians, how cinematic that whole stretch of you on exile Island is like the editors are throwing everything they can at the screen, like background music. There's swell. Like you said, there's the crescendos going up there. The music is like, they're just going over the top with how much they're trying to sell your trip to exile Island. It's one of those things, even people who don't like coach, I think you have to love that scene. That is absolutely one of the greatest scenes in survivor history. And I don't know how anybody could not like that scene. It's just amazing. Yeah, uh, it was. And I, I got to tell you a story that was never made it because you, they, they, there was nothing to show, but I'll tell you something that was kind of funny. So I'm, I'm uh, sitting there, we get there, the producer's telling me, you know, hey, stick by me at all times. You know, there's a couple of big cats that, are, that, that have been around. They've been around the campsite. They've been around this. They've been around that. And, uh, you know, there's anaconda down in the swamp. So, you know, you, you, I want to know where you are at all are. I want to know where you are at all times. And I'm like, okay, great. I got it. So then I said, I asked him, I said, man, you like your job? And he was like, not really. You know I mean? I'm working on Survivor is cool, but I mean, I'm sitting out here in exile. Well, by the way, I never saw this guy after the season, but uh, he was like, I don't really like it. You know, basically I'm out here in exile. I filmed for three days and what? 
15 seconds gets shown on air. I looked at him <laughs> and I said, dude, I can guarantee you that we're going to change that. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, right. <laughs> but I said that I said, dude, I can guarantee you that I'm going to change that. So that night, um, he's in his tent. And so I pee in a big circle around where I'm going to sleep. It's literally just out in the open. And I, mm-hmm. so I pee in a big circle. And then I put the, uh, the, the uh, charcoal from past fires. So I sprinkled pee and, and, a, and this uh, charcoal all around me in a big circle. And so, you know, I'm sitting there, laying there, not a lot of sleep. And uh, I hear the producers walking, walking and he's like, and there's somebody like saying, these, the big cats are coming right towards you guys. They're coming right mm-hmm. towards you. And the producer's like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And just like, sit tight, man, sit tight. Anyway, so I, I go to sleep long after that. And uh, the next morning I woke up, you know, I got like an hour or two to sleep. The next morning I woke up, man, these big cats had gone right around my pee. They they <laughs> like circled me during the night while I was freaking sleeping, dude. Because they, wow. there's these huge pop. And there, it, it was so cool, man. And, you know, nerve wracking. Anyway, so, and I was in a, I mean, I'm, I say I'm in an exalted state. I was in a effed up state and I was also completely crazy <laughs> in my thinking. And so I told the producer, I'm like, uh, so I woke uh, so I woke up, I saw the prints and, uh, I said to the producer, I said, uh, you know, Hey, can we follow these prints? And he was like, yeah, definitely not. And so I was like, okay. So I was like, Hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom right over the ridge. And he's like, okay stay in sight, da 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 Then he goes to the bathroom. So I take off, like, limping, running. I took off away from the producer to try to shake them because I was doing this, like, the whole token scene. I would just try to shake the producers. So I go to go out and explore because it was, like, such a amazing area. And so I, like, started, and so I, like, went off down past these prints to try to find out where they went. Don't ask mm-hmm. me why. It was stupid. <laughs> so I followed them all the way down to wow. uh, where it was a, Man, exile, one place in the world that I want to go back to is this place. Sand dune, like you're out in the Mojave Desert, which mm-hmm. is, you know, 200 yards from a swamp with anaconda, like a legit swamp that you would see in Louisiana, which was down the ridge. Mm-hmm. On the other side was high grassland, and then on another side was like this forest, and almost it reminded me a little bit about the Orinoco River when I was on the Orinoco River. Kind of jungle, kind of wetlands, kind of grassy. Anyway, so I followed the tracks down, and there were these grasses that were, you know, over over my head, like these huge reeds. And they had gone through mm-hmm. these reeds. It, it was a path that they took normally. This was their place. This was like their watering hole. They went all the way down to the river. So I started going through the grass, thinking that they were going to come out on either side. And by that time, the producer comes. He comes running down there, and he just he, he waylaid me. <laughs> he was like, "You funny, you don't ever." you know, do that again. You, da, da, da. I mean, he was so pissed. He was like, you will, you will get killed. This is their territory. And I was like, Oh man, I'm so sorry about that. I just wanted to explore a little bit. I never saw them. Like I never got a visual on them, but man, they were all over the place and it was super cool to, to be out there and to feel that, that sense of being alive. I mean, that was one thing that I really missed mm-hmm. on survivor. I think all these other adventures, I've been in the bush all over the world. And I've really been out there so that the element of danger was super heightened, you know, and the difference, of course, 
Survivor is harder in a way because if I'm on the Amazon, if I'm on the Orinoco, if I'm in the Congo, if I'm wherever I've been, I have a waterproof jacket. I can guarantee you that. And I've got a tent. And I, I can also guarantee you when I was on the Orinoco, I was sponsored by Cliff Bar. Mm-hmm. When I took my first trip on the Pacific Ocean, I was, spo- I was sponsored by Power Bar. I had 220 Power Bars in the course of six months. I can't <laughs> even look at a Power Bar anymore. So the next trip I took, I'm like, I'm going to get a different sponsor. So I call up Cliff Bar. I'm like, hey, I've done this. I was on you know front page of the LA Times. And it's, uh, so let's do this, and you guys can sponsor me. They're like, absolutely. So they sent me 80 Cliff Bars. So in the first two weeks, I had almost exclusively Cliff Bars. I couldn't couldn't stand the sight of it. I got majorly stopped up until I ate some piranha with some natives. That's another story for another day. But anyway, so, you know, I mean, some super cool experiences that I've had that anybody's had. You can't just look at me and say, oh, coach is full of shit. You've never done that. How many people have been down the Amazon? Right? A million. How many people have run into natives? A million. Come on. Yeah. Not, maybe not a million. A thousand. This is stupid. This is an everyday thing. You freaking go out in the bush anywhere in the world by yourself for two weeks, you don't have to be in a kayak. You just stay in the same spot and you're going to run into stuff, right? Anyway, so, you know, back to this thing, survivor's harder because you don't have a waterproof jacket. You don't have a tent. You don't have cliff bars. But then on the other hand, it's easier because you know that there's a start and a stop. It's finite and there's doctors out there. So even though there is definitely an element of danger, if you mess up in the Orinoco, mm-hmm. you're freaking dead. You're dead. Okay, you're dead. Like, I'd be going by these areas and the piranha were feeding and the water was bubbling like it was, you know, like a bubbling pot of water. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, one slip, jump over the edge, you're freaking dead. Yeah. So on Survivor, it wasn't that extreme. So it was kind of like these polar opposites. But the beauty of exile, as I wrap up this <laughs> rant, the beauty of exile was that that danger had become real to me. And at the same time, my body is eating itself, literally. Some super cool things that were going on. So we learned two things from that story. Number one is that your urine can stop apex predators. So we can call you the urine, the urine slayer. That's your new nickname. Is that cool? (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing we learned is that we just lost Power Bar and Cliff Bar as our sponsors. So thank you. <laughs> uh, I just have one more serious question for you before we kind of wrap this up. I know it's been quite a while here, but um, going into, I mean, we started this interview by saying, you know, at, after Token Chains aired, you were hated. You know, people would just curse you out online and yell at you. Is that still the case or has your reputation kind of come around over the years? It's it's a it's a good thing, yeah. You know the trilogy. I couldn't have scripted it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I would have sit down in the very beginning and talk to the executive producers and say, "This is what I want mm-hmm. out of the besides three wins in yeah, the best player in Survivor history," <laughs> but if I were if I were to script it, I couldn't have scripted it any better. And I feel humbled, mm-hmm. not false not just me saying it. I feel humbled and honored by the time that they have taken to kind of craft my story. And mm-hmm. I, I approached three seasons, three different ways. Mm-hmm. I accomplished it, right? I accomplished being a big character. I accomplished the second time around heroes and villains. I just, my, I was desperate for people to just see me as a real person. 
I'm mm-hmm. real. I'm sensitive, you know, and you saw that. And then the last time to say, I'm going to try to play the game a little bit. So, you know, people have come around circles. I think that they now miss Slayer of old. Mm-hmm. You know, if they look at it now thinking, and you can see it. I mean, people say this online, you know, yeah, give, 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 give coach credit, South Pacific, you know, he did good, da, 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 you know, but man, you know, the Dragon Slayer, those days, those days were golden. Unfortunately, you know, you can never, you can never get those days. You can never get that back. You can never recreate a new season. You don't know who this person is. And he's bringing that kind of character into the game. I'm not saying other people couldn't do it, but I'm just saying for me, I couldn't do that. I mean, if I were to go back on another season, I'd bring back that Dragon Slayer, man. He was the most fun, <laughs> um, you know, and th- and there's still a part of my personality like that that is dormant that I can bring out like all good super superheroes in the absolute nick of time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that, you know, people really do see that I've had this great arc and they love me now, you know I mean? And they love yeah. that. I, I think it's funny because they love that. The authenticity of saying you guys are freaking, you know, ignoble <laughs> cowards. And I'm, and then I'm ducking and trying to duck out of, I'm trying to duck out of exile. You yeah, know that's great. Like, yeah. but, but, it was, but it was authentic. That's the yeah. thing, right? It was authentic. And, and, and as I was saying it, listen, you can, you can poke holes in me all you want to. You can mm-hmm. even say, I don't know if I believe the Amazon story. Mm-hmm. But you cannot, you cannot deny the authenticity. And even I, I was reading, you know, people were like saying, I think he actually believes whether it happened or not is debatable. But I think he actually believes that it happens happened because of the uh of the just the authenticity i hate to keep using that word but mm-hmm. i'm bringing it yeah. you know i'm gonna bring it whatever i do in life this interview or anything else i'm gonna bring it and it is going to be authentic it mm-hmm. might be completely authentic only in my mind <laughs> but at least it's that and that's and that is missing um and i think it's missing a lot with Survivor and, and everybody, you know, from the top pushing these big moves because you, I get the big moves and I get the exciting finishes, but we've got to see the people who they are. Yeah. And so I think when these people, I, I brought this up before, but you look at people like Joe and maybe a little bit Ozzy, but you look at these people that are trying to make big moves and they're talking about making big moves and they end up playing, you know, a worse game because they're not meant to be that way. You're not meant to have a season where you have 20 people that are out there that are all great at making big moves. You need to have the gullible fool like coach that wants to trust an alliance of five. You've got to have the strategist like Cochran or whoever it is. But when you have everybody out there that they're trying to pigeonhole into into a strategist, I mm-hmm. think that you're going to miss something on the lasting stage. Yeah, and that's something that I've heard people talk about as well. I've heard contestants say somewhere around season 25, 30, 35, at some point they go in for interviews and stuff, and it's like the producers don't like looking you at the eye, looking you in the eye when they're talking to you, and it's almost like they want to 
make sure they don't humanize you because they want to be able to put you into any role they can. And I really don't think that was the case in your season. That it's clear they they humanized you. <laughs> yeah, That's so true. they looked me in the eye. They, they looked me in the eye. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just really one of those things that's just. I thought it was so cool, and and I've had a theory for many years that you know. When people play Survivor the first time, that's really the only time they're really their authentic self. Because after that, they're kind of playing the character or playing the archetype or trying to make up for the character or trying to counterbalance the, the archetype that they were given the first time. So and I just will say that you're one of the people that kind of I, I base that theory on, but in a good way, because I think you and Heroes versus Villains is one of my favorites. Because <laughs> it's like you figured out what the producers were going to do with you the second time, and you just kind of went with it. You're like, fuck it. We're just going to go with it this time. <laughs> So I love that about you. You just you steered right into the curve. That's it. That's it. Okay. Well, I got to wrap this up pretty soon here, but I just wanted to, uh, before we go, there's one question everybody asked, and this is the last, the one I have to end the interview on. Since Token Chains, have you ever thrown rocks at a tile underhanded? I have thrown <laughs> rocks underhand at targets and convinced myself that what I was doing was prepping me for my fourth survivor. Okay. I appreciate that you actually thought about that. You gave a thoughtful answer to a ridiculous joke question. So I appreciate <laughs> the authenticity as always, the authenticity pouring out of you. <laughs> cool. Well, um, that's really better. I just wanted to uh, thank you for stopping by. And I just want to say just uh, it's been cool finally talking to you again. Coach and I have talked behind the scenes a couple times over the years. This is the first really in-depth discussion we've had. And I just want to say how cool it is that, you know, his legacy and his uh, image over the years has changed because I'm not kidding. And coach will back me up hundred percent on this, how hated he was the first time he was on TV and how much it's really kind of changed over the years. And not to the sense where I think people love you now, but it's like, they like that you were around. They're like, oh, they miss you. Like you said, I really liked Coach on Survivor. Those were that was a fun era. So I really think it was good for the show and really just for you, good for you as a human that that kind of turnaround happened. So I'm really glad to see that it took place. And like I said, you know, somewhere in the beginning, I really it was a great experience for me to look at myself in the mirror, having to be on national TV, and with a lot of people throwing stuff at me. Mm -hmm. But it was such a great experience just as a man. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I said, you know, you talk about iron sharpens iron. You look at that show, man, like that's the ultimate iron. If you use it that way to sharpen me into being a better man, being a better father, a better person in the long run, taking myself a lot less seriously, being able to laugh at myself. Because I, I mean, I will tell you, I know we're done. We're out of time. You're like, coach, stop. We can't use <laughs> half of the stuff. It's way too long. But, you know, here's the thing. <laughs> I totally could not laugh at myself. I took myself so seriously. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to look and laugh and make fun of myself. And, you know, that's like a really endearing quality, especially to balance the high alpha male, successful, trying to drive as a coach and, and whatever, trying to drive myself. And so it actually has really balanced me 100%. Uh, mm -hmm watching myself, studying myself, processing why I do things and how I do things, and eventually trying to become a better man. You know, I'll, I'll end by saying this. I'm not the man I was 10 years ago. And 
where I, where I am now is not the man I want to be 10 years from now. And if you mm-hmm. use things in life to sharpen you, to become that better man, that's what life's about. It's a process. It's a journey. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah. For those who don't know, Coach is married now. He has kids. He's in a whole different stage of his life. And it's just really cool to see uh, where you are now. So it's been really great talking to you. Thanks for stopping by. Awesome. Thanks, my man. Yep. I'll talk to you later. And so there you have it, our uh, infamous interview, our second interview ever, this time with the Dragon Slayer. Again, i just like to uh, thank Coach for stopping by. That was It was a lot of fun setting that up and scheduling. And that's really the first time he and I have ever really talked about SurvivorCon on this, on this level. So I really appreciate him stopping by. And there may be an uh, interview with someone in the future. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. It depends on if you guys like this, if you want us to do, to do more stuff like this. I don't know. But for now... Uh, we are done with Token Sheens. We are ready to move on to Samoa. And uh, sure as hell got a lot to say about that season. This is going to be a fun one. So, as always, this is Mario Lanza. And this is Jay Fisher. And this is Mike Bloom. Glory holes. And this is Paul Asselson, Montana number one. And we are the Survivor Historians. Again, if you have any feedback on this interview, uh, you can uh, email us at survivorhistorians at gmail.com. We have our new Podbean uh, website up. with uh, We have all sorts of fun stuff on there. And all the, interview, all the uh, episodes go up there. So anyway, that's it for now. Thank you for listening, as always. And we will talk to you guys later. Take care. Oh,